Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week in the Beach Shack, it's great to have Paralympian from the USA, Jamal Hill. Now he represented the US in swimming at the Japan Paralympics and had a great result with a bronze medal and got himself on the dais. Now he talks about a disability that he tried to hide from a very young age. He eventually came out and told his current coach what his condition was and then that led him into being into the Paralympics. Now, Jamal also was the founder of Swim Up Hill and what he is doing to reduce drowning around the world in the water safety area is absolutely amazing. So now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Jamal. This week in the Beach Shack, it's uh, a pleasure. I've only known him uh, for a short time, but uh, Jamal Hill is a US Paralympian. And, mate, it's good to have you in the Beach Shack. Absolutely. Thank you. So life's a beach, and uh, I'm ready, man. I got my shovel. I got my bucket. (laughs) Mate, we'll start off uh, with your childhood. You had a... uh, a pretty tough time as a child, you know, hospitalized very young. So maybe just start off with that story. Yeah, man, absolutely. Uh, so you said it right there, right? I'm a Paralympian and, and my moniker, right? My, my Instagram handle is Swim Uphill. And that first story you're talking about, that was the first time in my life that I felt like I swam uphill uh, to, to overcome something. And so I was nine years old. It's uh, Thanksgiving season here in Southern California. And I go to Thanksgiving dinner, and there's just, throughout dinner, there's this onset of of really me losing connection with my body and and ultimately ended up leaving dinner and being admitted into the hospital uh, for three days. I was experiencing a full body paralysis. What had happened was a hereditary neuropathy. So that's a little bit of fancy way of saying uh, some genes in my body that I inherited from from my family line, they ultimately, they, they got triggered for whatever reason, and it messed up my ability for my brain to send signals all the way to all of my nerves throughout my body, uh, especially the ones from my knees to the soles of my feet and my elbows to my fingertips. So like I said, the first time I saw my pill when I was nine years old and, and being in the hospital for those weeks after, trying to relearn how to walk, trying to you know, relearn now. I got this new body as a 10 year old, but from my kneecaps down, it's kind of like my legs are almost like flesh and blood prosthetics, you know, like they're, 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 they're there, you know, I'm grateful. Uh, but, 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 but it's, it's a struggle. So, uh, yeah, man, that was the first time I swam uphill. Now, 
Tell us a bit about that because the disability is not visible, is it? No, it's definitely on the invisible spectrum, uh, the invisible disability spectrum. So like most neuropathies, some common neuropathies would be cerebral palsy. Uh, that's that's a name a lot of people need to be familiar with. But again, it, it almost, which is regular, right? There's a stigma of disability. Like, okay, unless I can see that you're an amputee, or, you know, I can tell, like, maybe this person's blind, maybe this person's deaf. It's a very limited scope at an, on, like, that initial on, on look. So, for me, again, uh, even being an elite athlete, I was like, people look at me like, you sure about this guy? <laughs> you sure about this guy? Like, this guy's in better shape than everyone that I know. Uh, it's like, well, you know, uh, thank you. <laughs> but, uh yeah, it, it it doesn't fit that stigma of disability. So it's been really powerful being an advocate for that. And and it's funny that you asked that because that story, like me kind of struggling to still feel valued and, 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 and legitimate, dude, that's the second time I swam uphill. <laughs> that was the second time I swam uphill in my life. So, yeah, that's a great question. So with um, into your teenage years, mm-hmm. obviously – not a lot of people knew about that. Did you keep that to yourself or did you try and do sports with everybody else and just try to fit in? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So coming up through my teenage years, the only people that knew about it, me, my mom, my dad, we had some family that were doctors, you know, so when, during my stint in the hospital, they came around. The crazy thing is I'm in the hospital for weeks, but it all happens during like Thanksgiving, Christmas break. So Nobody is at school, you know, so it's like, <laughs> there was no point where I just went missing, right? So nothing ever really had to be explained. And so, yeah, we just kind of, we lived with it. And at that age, obviously, you know, I don't know, time's changed, but at that age, my parents were making most of the decisions in my life. And, you know, they ultimately decided that it would be best to keep me in the dark about it for the reason that they didn't want me to grow up believing that my limits were defined in this textbook with this title on it. And, you know, that that's what's built me into the champion today. And like anything, you get good, you get bad from it. But nothing that nothing that I can't handle, you know, nothing I can't lean on to get some help for. So that's what that was like, man. Never, never told anybody in all the regular sports, you know, basketball, baseball, I stopped swimming at that point in time from like 10 to 16, just because when this disease started to manifest in my body initially, it was like throwing my joints out of, out of, out of, out of socket. And so doctors were like, you know, even before they're like, no, you got to stop swimming. And I've been a swimmer from like 10 months old to 10 years old. So I wasn't even swimming. I was just doing land sports and uh, yeah, it was just always, then I'm just here to not make excuses, you know? Mm-hmm. And also the challenge of, even if I was to talk about this, number one, it sounds like an excuse. Like, I can't see anything wrong with you, Jamal. I can't see, you know, like, hey, so so I just, I never gave anyone that chance. With, as you said, when you played the basketball and you played, you know, baseball, yep. did you find it difficult though, even though people didn't know you had something wrong, but did you find it difficult playing those sports? Yeah, I think uh, definitely um, I would say the most like visceral challenge was, there's a couple of things. One was just like a muscle development. So I'm a tall guy, I'm 6'4", I've never dunked a basketball. 
and it hasn't been for lack of training, you know? So <laughs> it's like one of those just, my I'm, I'm like jumping off of my kneecaps, right? So there are certain things like that that were troublesome. Uh, one thing, and I was hard-headed, dude, I'm still hard-headed, but <laughs> I like to think I'm better at managing it. But I would, I've probably sprained, twisted my ankle severely at least 200 times. Wow. Yeah, 100%. Running down the basketball, trip over my own foot and twist my ankle out the game. <laughs> you know, so, and and it was crazy because I'm a kid, you know, fashion's important here in Los Angeles. Like, so the, none of the high top basketball shoes were the cool looking ones. And I had to have the low tops and I refused to wear ankle braces because they messed up the sock colors into the shoes. And so, <laughs> You just you talk about like my dad wanted me just wanted to smack me around so many times probably just from being like negligent straight negligent um, but that kind of worked out a little bit like I went through a lot of pain uh, but now my ankles have literally just been put into every pretty much position when I go and I take a stumble or I take a misstep or my ankle just it just bends. It's like Gumby now, you know? I have, like, bulletproof ankles at this point. So, silver lining there. But, yeah, man, coming up, I was always, not always on crutches, but, like, I was always very conscious of, like, where I took my next step. Did you find it difficult mentally? Trying, because, one, you you haven't, people don't know what was wrong, but then you yeah. knew, but you couldn't, you didn't say it and, was there an element of embarrassment there or, yeah. you know, with your sporting career? There definitely was a bit of an element of embarrassment there for my sporting career. But, and this is going to sound crazy, but part of me had decided that I didn't have a disability. Like I decided that there's nothing wrong with me. It's like, no, that's not a part of my reality. I don't even think about it. Like You could be grilling me. Why can't you do this? And it's going to be the last thing to come to my mind. I can say that because that's what happened. You know? yeah. <laughs> that, this, this is what happened. So it was like straight, just do completely forget about it. Like I still had that experience. I knew what was going on in my body, but just kind of also, I don't know, man, like I've been learning a lot lately. And so I'll put some of my new knowledge to, to use here. Just I'm psychoanalyzing my childhood now, but <laughs> I just feel like dude, as a kid, I knew what I had gone through. And I also just intuitively have as a kid, right? Like I'm seeing how our family is reacting towards this, right? Like we're all pretty much putting on, it happened, but like it's, it's done happening now, right? Like this was the mindset, you know, simplified. Um, and dude, being a good kid, right? I'm trying to earn, I'm trying to earn some love here. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to reinforce <laughs> good decision guy. <laughs> It just like you buy into that, which is again like it served me in a lot of ways. It really helped me throughout <laughs> until until recently, like in a in a positive way, have that like limitless child mind, right? Yeah. But now over the last few years, because I would do some dumb stuff to try and get better, yeah. uh, so now it's like definitely I respect my body and, and understand that there are limits, you know, that are good to be respected, um, but. That's how it was, man. So I didn't even really, it's like, you know, the the bliss of living in ignorance, you know, like I decided to forget, like, no. Now came the point, though, of when did you decide I'm going to go back to swimming? I went back to swimming as a sophomore in high school, actually. 
Uh, so I was out for about six years. I went back as a sophomore in high school. I had transferred to this school to play basketball because my dad wanted me to be a basketball player. I like basketball, but like any, you, you get it. You're an athletic guy, competitive. If you're, you can like doing physical activities, but there's a different level of I want to compete in this. Right? Like I'm out here on the court with guys who want to be the best basketball player. And I'm like, like, I'm good, but I just want to play basketball, right? (laughs) Either way, so I transferred to that school. Lo and behold, they had a swim team. Uh, So basketball season rolled right into swim season. Went to the pool. I'm one of three kids on varsity, and all at junior varsity learned how to swim. So instant stud, even even having been out of the water for six years. And uh, at this point, I was telling this to my girlfriend recently, like, I'm – I should be careful when I say this, but I'm I'm a smart guy, but I may not always be like as smart as other people think that I am. You know, <laughs> and I realize that about myself. I'm not really sure that I'm as smart as, <laughs> as, as you guys have me up to be. But I say that because, dude, for me being a sophomore, and I always what I always talk about, man. One day I want to be swimming again. I swam like three months as a sophomore, maybe four or five months, maybe six months as a senior. And all through high school, I was swimming and and I had a really good championship at the end of my senior year, but came time for college. I'm like, okay, mind you, in high school, I stopped everything and just kept swimming. Came time for college. Okay, where should you go? Decent, smart enough to get the grade point average that will get me somewhere, right? So... (laughs) They're like, okay, look at these colleges. Well, I got two rules. One has got to be out of state. Two has got to have a swim team. So that cut out a lot of schools. That pretty much cut out all my free options. Um, But, (laughs) you know, even still now, though, like I'm making these decisions based off of I want to keep swimming. But when I was having conversations with family, oh, you'll probably go to the Olympics one day, this, that, and the other. I'm like, nah, I don't even like swimming that much. Like, (laughs) nah, it's not going to happen. Nah. And all the way. So it took me like six years to come into like, okay, I want to be a pro swimmer. It took me 12 years to come into like, okay, I want to come out of the closet about my disability. It took me nine years to come into like, okay, maybe I should, you know, (laughs) that's my relationship things over there. But like, you know, it's just taking me so much time and experience. uh, and, and, And for me, yeah, maybe this is what it looks like, but I'm sure it can't just be me. The stuff that is so important to us that we value, that's staring in our face every day, all the time, how long does it take to freaking finally click and be like, you know, maybe I do really like this. <laughs> maybe I should do more of this, you know? Maybe I should commit to this. So there you go, man. That's that's the long-winded response of, uh, of me getting back into swimming. <laughs> hey, that's, that's, that's great. Now, you got back into it, and... You obviously were just competing in, in with everybody else because yep. the no one knew about the, the disability. So were your times up with that, up with the everybody? Yeah, uh I mean pretty good, you know. I'm one thing, Olympic or Paralympic, you know, if, if you're top in the world, dude, that pretty much still means that I, I like most of the world, right? So uh, in high school I was not a stud swimmer by any means and, and our division was was not the stud swimmer division, you know? So <laughs> um, I say that to say, like, as a senior, I don't know, I swam like a 24-second race, and that won me the district title in the 50-meter freestyle. 
but that time was not fast enough to take me to state championships, right? So that's, it was, you know, so it was like, it was competitive, you know, for, 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 my, for the pond that I was swimming in. Yeah, it was competitive, but it wasn't competitive enough to go to the next level of state. And then even in college, just being athletic, I could hang, you know, I could hang, I could hang, I could hang. And even at all these levels, there's still these varying degrees, right? Like, there's still these, there, there, I got a buddy with a this, and this is the thing, I got a buddy on my U.S. Paralympic swimming team, represents Team USA. We're ranked out in classes, so like 1 to 14, pretty much the higher the number, the less severe your disability. I've got a buddy, one class below me, whose disability is, you know, according to that, more severe. And he freaking, like, in 100 meters backstroke, I don't, I'm building my backstroke, but 100 meters backstroke, on a regular basis, he could beat me by, like, if he's on his own day, he could easily beat me probably by, like, eight seconds. Yeah, wow. You know what I'm saying? So I say that to say, like, (laughs) you would just be like, if you got it, you got it, you know? Like, if you got it, you got it, regardless of what you don't got. So I was the best on on my small college team. Uh, in terms of sprinting for one year, for two years, like my sophomore, junior year. But yeah, man, it wasn't uh, like when I was in college before I dropped out to become a pro swimmer. Uh, I went to national, we went to championships and the times I put up were like only barely faster than I was three years ago earlier in high school. And uh, and that was one of those aha moments for me because my parents have flown out 2,000 miles, dude. We're here at championships. I worked the hardest I ever worked at swimming in my life that year and uh, didn't make a single final. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not a single final. Times were not all that good. Our relay was, dude, our relay was shit. Uh, Not even in contention for the, we didn't even make the final of relays. We couldn't swim relays with all the teams because we were so bad. But I went home (laughs) from that on the bus and I'm crying. I'm like, I'm heartbroken. This is probably, you know, one of my first acknowledgeable heartbreaks. I accepted this heartbreak. And uh, when got back to school, low-key went through a little depression and then just kind of came to this realization, dude, if it's eating you up this bad, you probably care about this a little bit yeah. more than you're letting on, you know? <laughs> like, what's going on? And, yeah, so that was when I made the decision. Like, I'm a junior in college, physics major, French minor, and you know what? Hey, my dad, I got to drop out and go become the best swimmer that I can be. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what was his response to that? Dude, honestly, <laughs> shut up to Sandra and JD. They said okay. They yeah. said okay. And, you know, I mean, so both of my parents are athletes. They both have an athlete background, you know, so that there's a privilege, right, that kind of came with that, especially my dad. Like, he had hoop dreams. My mom was good enough, arguably, to, to have made uh, an Olympic track and field team at a certain point. We just grew up with brothers. So, and they had also been seeing outside looking in. I'm sure they were seeing, like, okay, he only wants to go to a college that's going to give him a swim school. Like, okay, he is building, in, you know, just like that outside perspective where they're still close enough. So I told him, like, hey, I got to do this and uh, started looking up coaches and, found one at USC right in my backyard, Dave Salo. And so I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm coming home. It works out. But 
in my mind, I'm like, I don't care where this coach. This coach could be in Florida. This coach could be in Colombia. This coach could be in 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 Nepal. Yeah. Who is the best coach? Because I need to get there. It's 2016. I got four years to try and make this next team. So that's where my mind was. And yeah, my parents were super, super supportive. Um, again, let me come home. Like, didn't give me a hard time. They were still on me about you know going to school and things like that, trying to trying to take care of that, which I was, you know, but, but also now just like having that support, especially in a city like Los Angeles, coming back from school, having that support, not having a job, you know, I had a car that was my greatest asset probably. Uh, well, I, my mind was my greatest asset, you know, <laughs> but that was my, you know, probably a, a car is extremely viable commodity in Los Angeles. Um, uh, if you're not driving in the city, you're not trying. <laughs> So, had you know, I had housing. I still have my car, but I didn't have a job, and I really didn't have like outside of being able to teach swim lessons, which, as a pro athlete, is not sustainable. Actually, like it, it takes it. It just takes a lot of energy, especially in and out. It just it just takes a lot. So, that's that's another conversation. But doing that on the side, and then just hustling, man, like just trying to make it. You know, like I would come home again. I'm coming home to my parents. So I had dinner every night, but I'm a young man, dude. Like I'll be damned if I'm asking for breakfast and lunch money every day to go out into the world. So, uh, you know, like just out there getting getting whatever I could get my hands on. Dude, going to the 99 cent store to make a lunch, you know, a lot of days. Just just regular, just things I think a lot of people experience, you know, not, not too much of an anomaly of an experience when you come into the real world. Yeah. Now, what what point did you decide I'm going to announce what the challenges I've had and, and who did you do that to? Mm, that was 2018. Uh, so 2018, I got in a new coach. We've been together for about a year. Wilma, she's still my coach now. Um, and she came to me one day after we had been working together for a year and she's like, yo, you remind me of some of my patients with cerebral palsy that I used to work with. Like, I see the way you swim, the way you dive. It's not really a dive. It's more like a fall. I see the way you pick your legs up when you go to get out of the car. Like, what's going on? And this is the first time in 12 years anybody has asked me this. A big part of me is relieved. I'm like, I actually got this thing going on. This happened when I was 10 years old. This is, you know, more or less how, you know, I know it affected me at that time. And and her response was, well, okay, if we can't cure that and, you know, found the name, if we can't cure that, instead of an Olympic dream, maybe you should be looking at the Paralympics. And that's when it hit me. You know, I'm like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. You must not know who Jamal Hill is, lady. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't no Paralympics. Eh? <laughs> and, and, and again... That just, it's beautiful to be able to have an experience and say that you learned from it, right? Because it's like, had anybody asked me up until that point, oh, do you think Olympians and Paralympians are created equally? Do you think fully able-bodied and less able-bodied people are still people? Or are they all equal? Like most people, my response would have been, of course, dude, yeah. What do you, am I an a-hole? What do you think? Of course. <laughs> but as soon as I was in that shoe, I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> You don't understand. <laughs> no, no, no. I know it's all equal, but like I'm on this side of the equal sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and so 
that was a humbling experience. But in the moment, uh, I, I was not ready for it. You know, it was, it was the first time. And politely, it's, it's politely as I told her, like, we're not going to have this conversation again. Uh, you know, and, and so we just kept training. Later on that year, a good buddy of mine came out from Britain. He's become a good buddy. Uh, but at this time, I didn't know him. <laughs> so he came out from Great Britain. He's swimming with us. We do a couple races on film. We're looking at the film, and he says, Jamal, did you know that your legs don't work? Because he's watching me dive in. And I'm like, I, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> he's like, dude, you should check out the Paralympics. It would be, it would be great. I got a blind friend. I got this. I got that. And uh, my energy shifted. And he's like, oh, you know, dang. Yeah. I said something I shouldn't have said. And, uh, you know, I took a few minutes, stepped away. But uh, ultimately, we're just like, dude, this is, this is too crazy. You know, it's been 12 years. And now in six months, two people, both relative new people, one, you know, kind of a stranger to my life, have confronted me with this. Maybe I just need to see where this goes, right? I'm already on this leap of faith, mind you. I dropped out of college to go be a pro swimmer, completely unknown, completely unranked, um, swimming mediocre at best in Division Three. So, <laughs> you know, it's like I'm already on this road of, do whatever, wherever it takes me, at the end of it, I know I'm going to be able to say I did what I could do for it. And that was the whole spirit behind it, like, yeah, do I want to make the Olympic team? At, at that time, yeah. Did I, I later want to make the Paralympic team? Did I want to make? Do I still want to win more medals? Do it? Of course, right? Like, I'm a winner. Of course, of course, <laughs> I want to continue to win, dude. Let's let's not be, you know, let's not be crazy, but just at the same pace, being able to really step back and be like, but I already won though, because I'm doing. Cause I'm taking these chances. Cause I already won. Can't always control the result, but like this, making the decision to do it and to commit, that's one. I've already won that, and I win yeah. that every day. I get up, boom, that's a slam dunk, baby. Get some <laughs> slam dunks in here, yes, sir. Slam dunking in my speedos. <laughs> well, that must have been an amazing feeling. One that would just a relief off your shoulders that you know people that you're speaking to actually understand. Uh, what you've been going through. And what was that moment like when you did make the US team? Oh, man. So it was it was pretty wild because the same year that I announced my disability, like uh, earlier that year, I written on a flashcard, I want to win a national swimming medal. And at this time, that's like pipe dream. <laughs> <laughs> that year, uh, my second Paralympic, national Paralympic competition, I think I took home three or four national titles in Paralympic swimming. I was officially named to the team the next year, 2019, uh, I think, is when I really started to make some more of those cuts. Or It was right around the 2018, 2019, but it was good, man, because when I made that team is when I finally kind of fully overcame the biggest burden of shame surrounding my disability, you know, because I had accepted it, but I was still fighting that. It was still like it was out there, but it's like I still hadn't really built the brand around it, you know. So it's like, what about what about my girl? What about my old best friend? What about my uncle? What about what about what about the homie from fifth grade? Like you know, people, you know, are they gonna think of me different? Are they gonna think of me less than? Um, 
I feel like I got enough struggles. I'm not trying to be this, you know, like I don't want to be this, however good or bad it is, you know. Um, so just working through that and and really uh, it was a conversation that I had with my dad one night. I, I just had all reached a boil and, and it was, you know, I was crying. But I was just distraught. Like I was feeling so conflicted uh, about my identity and, and, and how that was translated into my perception of my own value. Right? Like, am I still worthy? Am I all these things if I'm not perfect? If if I got something that maybe a lot of people not even don't have, but also, like, probably can't even really see or appreciate. So you know, that might, I don't know how that would make somebody else feel. So just struggling through that, man. But, yeah, pop my head out on the other side. <clears throat> and it's been... Literally, you know, it's been cheers and rockets ever since. Just owning that story, that story, owning my story, owning my life, having gratitude for my journey, still making plenty of mistakes, you know, uh, still, you know, learning, learning a ton, making plenty of victories and then trying to learn from those victories and and, and just growing and expanding, man. So, you know, when, my, when me and my first first started, when me and my current coach first started working together, she said, you know, why do you want to swim? Why do you want to be this champion? Why do you want to win the gold medal? Like, what's your why? Uh, why do you show up every day to practice? And my answer is the same thing that it is now. Like, for me, I love swimming. But but the reason why I do it at this level, for me, it's because it's a means to an end for me. Um, it, it provides me a platform on a global community and stage to champion causes uh of the unheard champion causes of the forgotten um and, and that's what it is uh, allowing allowing this mission and these things that i that i do my darndest to embody and to represent to come about in rooms that you know maybe i will never enter you know or haven't entered yet so that's why i swim uh <laughs> and yeah, man. So, so that that's what it was like making that team, and and that's really kind of that's the fuel behind. Okay, you already know training is tough, but, you know, especially after you win, dude. It's like, uh, like how much can I get away with? <laughs> um, you know, so so that keeps me fired up. But that's very powerful because uh, people listening, you know, so many people out there, you know, in different positions that that they find difficult that they haven't been able to speak about or talk about. And I think listening to what you're saying would really help a lot of people. Now, what was it like when you then went to the Paralympics? Once in a lifetime experience, primarily, I think because of COVID-19, you know, so everything was in this, it was in this COVID context or also just obviously once in a lifetime experience because right now not many, not many people become Olympians or Paralympians. It was in this COVID context, so it almost like, you know, it didn't fit that it didn't fit that grand fantasy that you and I know watching the games on television. It wasn't that. But in some ways that made it like for me at least, I don't know the opposite, but I was able to adapt well to that. Like it almost brought all the focus in. Uh, it, it cut out all the distractions, um, you know, so living in the village, we were only taken straight from the village to our venue and back. No guests, um, no bystanders, no nobody in the stadiums. 
And then throughout the village, everyone's masked up. And even in the cafeteria, there's there's plexiglass windows between or dividers between literally every seat. So I could hear someone sitting right next to me because, you know, there's open space on this side of the table. But if you were directly across from me or diagonally across from me, like, you know, we're not really going to have a conversation. It's just going to be, I'm going to get frustrated. (laughs) You know, you just can't communicate too well. So that plus the international factor of all these different languages, not being able to see body language, it definitely made it, it was it was isolating. It was it was an isolating experience. And in some ways, again, for me, like I would say probably my greatest my greatest probably superpower is that like I can adapt. I'm almost like a chameleon. Uh and, and solace is strangely not a very weird place for me. I grew up an only child, so that's not to say that oh, trust me, I got stressed at a certain point, you know, because it's like, dude, it's you got this goal, right, for four years, five years. And so, so rarely do our goals have an actual end date. Like, no matter what happened, if your goal is to win a race at the Paralympics, that race happens this day. Now, you will either be there or not be there, and you will either win or you will not win. (laughs) But it has a date. It's not like, oh, I want to lose 20 pounds by, you know, 100 days from now. And it's like, okay, the 100 days it comes and goes, yeah, there's an end date, but it's different. You know, this is like graduation. It's happening. Uh, and again, you'll either be there or you won't. Uh, and then depending upon your attendance, you'll either achieve, you know, whatever that highest aspiration is or you won't. So I'm real good at about uh, keeping stress down. One thing I learned early on in my career is that you don't have to, you don't have to like try and anticipate the event. Like you don't have, Trust me, the event in the day, it's going to have enough energy for you. You know, like you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to get stressed prematurely. Like you should not be worried about it two weeks out, a week out. Like maybe as you start to get to those last two days, then you start to feel it a little bit more. Right. But before that, dude, your mind should be clear because, again, all those emotions will take care of themselves. You don't need to try and manufacture them. But that was probably probably the best experience was how much I had grown as an athlete in, in that, you know, a lot of athletes and even high achievers have problems admitting when they're facing stress. They have problems admitting when they're not feeling confident. They have problems admitting when they're afraid, right? Uh, and, and we just bury it. I used to just bury it, uh, even to the point to where I would be at a swim meet and, and, and a, an assistant coach was like, dude, I was looking at you. And she's like, I think you were scared. I think you were nervous. And I'm like, let me know. And she starts like rattling off these body, like this body language that I was giving off. And I'm like, wow, that does sound like I was scared, actually. It's like maybe, maybe I'm coming to find out that meat, I hadn't brushed my teeth for like three days. So <laughs> I was definitely, something was on my mind. Um, you know, so I was able to communicate that. Phoned home. We got my coach on the phone. We got, uh, we got my hypnotist on the phone. We got my energy healer on the phone. We got, I'm calling everybody in, you know, uh, because this is not the place, you know, again, not to say that you can't achieve, you know, there are definitely some people who continue to stuff that stuff down and bury it. And whether you win or not, dude, that's just not sustainable. That's not the right way to go. I love Michael Phelps, huge fan. He achieved so many sports greatness, but 
he's still battling mental health issues because of the way that he went about achieving those goals. And, and he speaks so openly about there's another way, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a lot of other ways. And, and so, yeah, I had the, I had the privilege of, of experiencing that and, and went well, man, the, the schedule lined up really well. I had a, almost like a warm up race. That's why I'm a hundred freestyle. Um, not a best time, but you know, within probably like 400 of my best time, didn't expect to final it, but at least got the nerves out of that race. And then, uh, had my 50 freestyle came into the prelims. Uh, and so we're swimming it's broadcast. So for in the U S my, what I was swimming in the morning was broadcasting at night. And what I was swimming at night was broadcasting in the morning, the next day. Like, so I'm swimming my prelim at like 9am California time. Win the heat. Okay, that's a good feeling. Okay, that's that's yeah. a good feeling for prelims. You win the heat. So I win the heat, and uh, it's going up, and everybody back home who knows nothing about someone is like, oh, my God, he won. <laughs> he won. He won. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I wasn't on social media at that time. Like, I, I'm somebody, big meat, you're not going to catch me. You know, like, it's a distraction, dude. Oh, my God, zap so much energy. I try and tell that to the young summers, you know, and some of them hear me, but – I digress, man. Come back that night, and uh, this is one reason why it'll probably never be like this again. There's nobody in the stadium. And uh, if you've ever seen an, an Olympic final, everyone comes out. They got their hoods on. They got their goggles done. They're suited in booty. You know, it's like intimidation almost. Darth Vader's walking out into the pool. And, dude, uh, we come out for the heat, and I'm decked out in literally what I will wear to practice in sunny Southern California. I got on a tank top. I got on some some short shorts and a pair of flip flops with no socks on. You know, <laughs> just like I'm about to go dive into practice almost. And uh, definitely the outlier of the group, but that was the beauty of it. In that moment, it literally just felt like another day of practice. Like I'm just here in this moment to get up, believe that one, believe none of these other guys are going to beat me today. And number two, more importantly, I'm about to just do my best. And that's it. And do what I've been training to do. So that was dope, man. I I finished that race. And instead of whipping around to look at the scoreboard, I just kind of sat there for a minute and let it all sink in. Like, I didn't want, I didn't want, I didn't want to immediately feel more happy or like, or more sad based off of what the scoreboard said. You know, like I didn't, I knew I didn't come in first because I could see a guy in my peripheral to the left, but I knew I beat the guy to my right. So I'm like, okay, I came in somewhere between sixth and, I mean, second and seventh place. And I have no clue, right? But just stopping and sitting there for a minute and being like, dang, do you probably just swim the best race of your life right now? I could feel it. I'm like, no, I left it all in the water. Like there was a point in that race where I had to shut my eyes and, and just, you know, try and go super sane, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> I need all the power. If there was ever a moment to push, this is the freaking moment. Yeah. I had that experience and it was, it was visceral. It was, it was almost like a psychedelic. Um, and, and so I just appreciated that. And, and I plan on just leaving the pool, you know, obviously I'd say what's up to the other athletes, but leaving the pool and, and not finding out the result until I got into the back room or something. And and then I heard one of my teammates, you know, 12,000 seat stadium, there's only 50 people in there. <laughs> I hear one of my teammates calling Jamal, Jamal, and it don't take a rocket scientist, man. Look, 
if you're at the Paralympics and they're calling your name after a race, that means you came in top three. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody's in the final heat, but nobody's nobody's yelling for fourth and after. So that's a good sign, dude. Turn around, you know, squint, chlorine in eyes, and then boom, there it is. You know, Jamal Hill, USA flag, uh, third place. So, you know, that, that, that validated a lot of hard work. Um, out of every event, only three people get to come home with a medal. Only three. And uh, if you're there, just remember that everyone there is the best from where they're from. Like, this is literally the tournament of the world's champions. Everyone there is the best from where they're from. How what yeah, so that that's it, man. That that was Tokyo, dude. It was a blast. Yeah, just it, it must have been an amazing feeling, especially with what you've been through from childhood right up to that moment. And it's just great to hear that you took that time when you're in the pool to really think about it all. Yes, sir. Yeah, man. That, that was uh, that that was my that was my favorite moment from Tokyo. More powerful than then being on the podium and getting the medal over my neck, uh, yeah, that was probably my favorite moment. Well, tell us a bit now you, about Swim Uphill. You've you've created this, and, and tell us a bit about it. Absolutely. So, you know, I told you guys, Swim Uphill itself is a movement. Um, you know, it's it's about people who who overcome challenges, you know, people who aren't afraid to go against the grain in order to be great, who, who aren't afraid and uh, afraid of being uncomfortable in order to get ahead. And and I shared with you two of my swimming pill moments, right? When I was nine years old, battling paralysis. When I was 22 years old, battling how to love and appreciate myself despite disability. Now, your swim uphill may be you don't know how to swim. And that's why I founded the Swim Uphill Foundation. Our mission is to teach 1 million people a year how to swim by the year 2028 by the Olympics and Paralympics of 2028 to be helping a million students a year learn how to swim. And um, like I said, you know, earlier, Hapo, you had asked me about when I first made that U.S. team, how special was that? That was when I really decided to lean into, you know, being of service because I was on that podium and I had medals around my neck and I was feeling good, big smile. And I couldn't help but ask myself, do I have more to offer than a big smile and standing on podiums? Like, is that going to be the value, the joy that I bring to others and what I've been able to accomplish in, in any one race or something like that? And and uh, ultimately, I decided, nah, I got way more to offer than that, uh, you know, and, and uh, just being a swimmer, it led me on, it led me into research and it led me into a uh, uh, search for partnerships and solutions for a global problem, a global endemic, you know, uh, around the world, up to a million people are drowning. That That's going into our projected unrecorded numbers, you know, so there's a lot going on and, and it mainly comes down to education and access. So that's what the Swimming Pill Foundation's mission is, That that's the cause behind it. And we do it through ultimately one technology, simple technologies, laptops, cell phones, uh, but also using household items like bowls, benches, buckets, things that hold water to teach basic water, to, to teach not only water safety education, but to teach basic swim education. You no longer need a pool to start to learn how to swim. You no longer need that uh, that lake or, or whatever to start to learn how to swim. We can start to do it now in the classroom uh, or in Botswana. 
you know, wherever we are in the world, as long as these people have access to clean drinking water, which is its own subject matter in water equity, uh, Swim Up Hill Foundation is there to help them become swimmers. And, and, and listen, dude, we're winning the war on drowning. That's what we do. We are winning the war on drowning. So uh, it's been a pleasure to just kind of sit and talk with you and have an opportunity to learn about your foundation and how well aligned we are. Yeah, we are well aligned. I mean, my one is the float to survive and, you know, teaching people to float and, and it's a survival skill, like you're saying, all around the world. It's something that we've both got the same passion in reducing drowning around the world because the way I see it, there's just too many people losing their lives where potentially if they can be saved, though. Exactly, exactly, 100%. It is a... Uh arguably the most preventable it feels it feels the most preventable when it happens when i hear about it it always feels the most preventable um so yeah man a hundred percent and it's it's probably amazing with our paths have crossed uh recently and and it's just progressing you know and, and there's a lot of things like that we're probably going to do in the future to to collaborate with our causes and and you know hopefully we can come and you know, chat Again, yeah, in a few sure. years' time, and say, "Geez, we've we've reduced drowning by fifty percent around the world. That'd be an sure. amazing achievement." Absolutely, man. A little bit sooner. I'm hoping to make a team and uh, come and visit you in Australia this fall. So, uh, you know, well, well, my fall when I come to Australia yeah. it won't be fall. Will it? It'll be no, spring. It'll be. It'll be. Uh, when, when would it be? August. In August. August. Yeah. So it'll be at the end of our winter. At the end of your winter, oh, yeah. great time. Yeah, great, great time. <laughs> great time. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, Jamal, it, it, mate, it's, it's been great having a chat. Listen to your story. I, I think your story is amazing. I think what you've achieved from, from, your, from your youth through to your swimming career and now, you know, continuing your, your swimming career because obviously you uh, will be going for the next Paralympics as well. <laughs> yeah, step, step one is make the team. <laughs> make that team, and then you make a final, and then you finish the race. That's the three yeah, steps yeah. to a that's the three steps to a medal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then also, then you know, continue on with uh, with swim uphill. That's something that can go on forever. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Hopefully, one day it'll be going on so long they decide to cut my name out of it. <laughs> who was that? Who was that hill person? Who <laughs> now, mate, at the end of the uh, interview, I do a segment called Five Fun Facts. So okay. I'm going to throw in uh, throw five questions at you, and uh, you can answer them however you would like. Exciting. The first one's best thing about swimming. Best thing about swimming is that you have the most fun on vacation. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of my my desire to be the best me I can be. What's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? Red, the most interesting thing I've seen this week is the crash of crypto. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what ridiculous thing has someone tricked you into doing or believing? When I was a kid, my, my friend's dad had a hardware workshop in the back and he had like a work table, a wooden work table and 
probably for a couple years, they would tell me that if I just sat underneath the work table and found a hidden button, that it would lift up to the ceiling and I could see out to the other houses. So that is, I've, I've really searched for that button for, for a long time. <laughs> uh, what's the closest thing to real magic? Sheesh, uh, the closest thing to real magic? Our thoughts. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Great answers. Yes, and if, if anyone wants to get on to look at uh, Define Swim Uphill, where, where's the best place for everybody to search yeah, for it? Absolutely. Thank you, man. The best place is swimuphill.org or swimuphill.com. Come and join our Give 5 Save Lives campaign. Uh, you can get $5, $50. You might even be the first person to get $500 a month. All of that is going towards the war that we're winning against drowning. We're, we're winning that war on drowning. And, uh, that's it. So thank you so much, swimuphill.org. Magnificent, um, Jamal. It's, it's been a pleasure, mate, and uh, we'll catch up soon when you're in Australia. Right. And also, uh, you know, we'll continue our uh, our campaign together and uh, let's yeah. try and uh, move through and, and reduce drowning around the world. Do we're doing it. We'll continue. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, sir. Appreciate the time. I appreciate it. Now let's go to Beach Banner. It's good to have in the beach shack an old mate that used to work on the beaches with me at Bondi, Maddie Calhoun. How are you? Good, mate. Now, we, we've done a lot of resuscitations over the years uh, down at Bondi. Is there any that stand out for you? It wasn't my first one. It was because uh, probably my second one. It was a big surf at Bondi. Beach was closed. We were sitting on the north end sort of monitoring couple of swimmers who weren't, you know, we can't enforce a no-swim zone and some people were going in, so we are sitting up north and it was huge and I just happened to glance down to um, South Bondi, which is a lot more dangerous than North Bondi if you know Bondi Beach, and I uh, saw two heads in backpackers, which at the time I don't know if it was called backpackers, a young surf lifesaver called Charlie, who's about six foot six now, he was at that time he was about... 14, 15, he wasn't so big. I said, get on the bike, mate, and we whipped down to South Bondi. I took the lifeguard board off the side of the bike. I think he ran up and got the lifeguard board that sits uh, on the rip. And I got out, and it was two Asian descent people in the rip, and they were in a massive panic. And one was basically they were fighting each other to stay on top of each other. It's quite sort of disturbing when you think back on it. One was pushing the other one under to keep above him to keep himself alive, basically. A surfer come across. He was he must have seen it. He came across and I ended up – I remember I, I, I think I had to – I jumped off the board to grab the, the, the swimmer that was under and held him up. I think Charlie come out and I grabbed that board and we put him on. The surfer held up the, the guy who was actually conscious at the time and the unconscious patient I put on the board. I got I get I got him back to shore. I think Charlie ended up getting with the surfer, got the other the guy that was conscious in. And now the problem there you have is you go in with just your boardies on. Back then it was probably speedos. We weren't as cool as the guys are now. Rod Kerr taught me to work to wear um, board shorts everywhere. You know, I'm glad he did. <laughs> back to the beach and I'm not even sure this is one of my first res uh, um, resources. 
my, it was my second recess and the and the first one from a from a rescuing someone. The other one was a heart attack on the beach. Uh, this is my first from pulling someone out of the water. So they had a lot of water in them. And at the time, um, I didn't have my mask because we didn't wash in where I took my gear off. The bikes weren't as well equipped with the resus gear. You know, it was just the bike. So I just had to do mouth to mouth on the guy. Back then, it was uh, mouth to mouth was um, the first part, and you obviously did the chest compressions. But I know now you don't do so much mouth to mouth, and it was it was one to five or even two to fifteen back then. We got into it. Eventually, the paramedics turned up. We we couldn't get the guy back, which um, and the paramedics couldn't get him back. I remember the police came down because we had mentioned that the two were struggling and one won, won, won the struggle. Uh, I said, mate, that is this human nature. They, they were both drowning. It turned out they were merchant seamen. They were off a boat. And they, they'd just come down to Bondi. I thought, oh, we'll just jump in the water. But it was huge. And if you weren't a strong swimmer, there was only one or two surfers out there. They weren't even getting out there. You know, the surfers are quite good in the water. And there was no swimmers around. Young Charlie did a great job. He's, as I said, he ended up playing back row for East Rugby up in the, one of the higher grades there. So, yeah, but he was only a kid at the time. How did that affect you? Because a lot of the guys over the years, it does affect the lifeguards when you have a, a resuscitation and then a death, and even a resuscitation and they survive. It does affect you, doesn't it? Yeah, look, it affects you if you think about it. But I, I think um, I, I grew up in a, with a – a father who was a doctor, and I saw a lot of this stuff when I was a kid in in his magazines, like you know, a lot of diseases and stuff like that. And I was, and I, you know, I got to pull in a lot of dead bodies over the time. And I know it does really affect some of the boys badly. You know, maybe a defensive mechanism for me, or maybe I just don't care. And I hope it's the uh, the the former, not the latter. But I sort of I didn't dwell on it, and and I knew it. When the police fronted me, I said, well, that's just life, you know. That's just, just two people trying to stay alive and one guy won, you know. It's like it's, that was yeah, – but I, I didn't I don't, didn't let it worry me. I, I, I just got on with it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not too blase about that. Yeah. I know it does affect it. I, I, there's a, I won't mention names, but a few of the boys, when we were doing a few resources, you know, were really – you know, they had to take a few days off and go and talk to people. Maybe it's affecting me later in life. Ask my wife. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm no, uh, I'm staying away from that one, mate. I don't give yeah, any. I don't enough. give uh, any advice on the wife department in the, yeah. the, the, with my uh, with my track record. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, yeah. but uh, but it's uh, great having you in the beach shack, mate, and telling your story. And uh, I've got to get you. We'll get you back in very soon. All right, mate. Great. That was great. Thanks, mate. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Jessica and she's from Sydney. I see Cuba, your dog, is a bit sick. Well, Jessica, yeah, he's got um, what you call kennel cough. I mean, he's had his vaccinations for that. So he's a bit uh, sick at the moment. He's getting around with his cough. But uh, he'll be uh, okay. He's just got to rest up for a week or two and stay away from other dogs, which is going to be pretty tough because he's 100 miles an hour and he loves going out and playing at the beach around the park with other dogs. So it's going to be a tough time for the next 
seven to ten days, but uh, we'll cope and he'll have a full recovery. So thanks, Jessica, for your letter. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.